0: Welcome to a pod called Quest. I'm Christian Davenport, a.k.a. Bit of Ninja Science. I'm with Derek Darby, a.k.a. Fearless Watcher Sage. In our pod, we utilize what we refer to as our Ptolemaic framework to evaluate the topic of the day. This means we evaluate three subjects, politics, economics, and social cultural factors across three domains, the diagnosis of the problem, the prognosis of where we're going to go, and the means to get from one to the other. Episode 12, a pod called Quest Goes to Dartmouth. Young people have been on the front lines of social justice movements from the Student student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee of years past to the Black Lives Matter movement of today. They're taken to the streets, the podiums, and to Twitter and protests, demanding freedom, justice, equality, and much more. This pod is a deep dive into student activism, past and present, focused on identifying diagnosis, prognosis, and means. The 1962 Fort Huron Statement and the Black Youth Project of the current period will be under our microscope. Dee, what you got?
1: Hey, science, what's the word, man? Uh, Last episode, we covered the topic of royal racism and British imperialism uh, with a view toward highlighting the legacy of economic violence. Uh, And we also tried to, in that connection, make some sense of what's happening on the southern border in the United States the ongoing and very disturbing incidents of anti-Asian hate uh, going on throughout the country. Uh, And all of these issues in different ways raise questions about migration and immigration. So on the menu today, we want to think, spend some time thinking about our young people and youth-led social movements for justice. And to do that, we want to think a bit about historical traditions of student activism, uh, one in particular, and then draw some connections between that tradition and uh, some current uh, movements. Uh, And we want to think a bit broadly about the importance of uh, student involvement in taking responsibility for societal injustice and think a little bit about what duties are at issue as, as students sort of move forward in that. Uh, but before we get going, as always, Sage, I want to ask you how you doing, my brother? It's always good to see
0: you. I'm doing all right. It's like um, um, finishing up grading. And so um, it's it's that awkward dynamic where um, I have those. Uh, I, I had more classes than I've ever had before because I felt that I needed to. Um, and so I just been working on that, but, uh, you know, sabbatical's on the other end of it. So I'm just kind of like, um, this is really, this is really just an annoyance at this point, but the projects so the final projects are so phenomenal for my social movement efficacy class and the police violence class that it's actually a joy to look at them. So um, I'm, I'm doing about as well as I could do.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm always great when we get on the mic together. Cause as we always say to each other, it's, it's among other things like therapy for us, man. <laughs> Um, and I'm also really excited for this particular episode that we're taking a pod called Quest to Dartmouth University. Uh, and we're delighted to have the Dartmouth audience on the line uh, with us now and looking forward to a conversation after we uh, uh, wrap for today. Um, let me just start by um, telling you about what I what I did just earlier today. I was an invited panelist at a Middle school town hall meeting uh, for New York City uh, middle school, public middle school. And it was really wonderful event. Um, it gave there were, there were about 200 people on the line and it comprised of middle school students. And the panelists consisted of uh, police officers, an FBI agent, a couple of attorneys, and social work folks. And the point of the discussion was to allow the young people to raise questions about what happened in, you know, in the aftermath of uh, the George Floyd murder and then now the uh, verdict, uh, the first verdict in the case against uh, the officer that uh, murdered Floyd. And I gotta tell you, brother, man, I was just so inspired, man, by these young people. The questions that they had, they were tough questions, man. I. I just, they were tough, they were to the point, and uh, it really did my heart good to know that our very, very young people are uh, engaged uh, in a thoughtful way in thinking about some of our pressing problems of today, one of which is obviously the problem of police violence against people of color. And that, of course, had me thinking about our conversation for today, um, where we want to sort of... Attention on the importance of young people in bringing about change within society, both historically and today. Um, I had an occasion to re watch um, Raul Peck's documentary uh, on James Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro. And at one point in the uh, uh, film, James Baldwin comments to remind people of how young everyone was during the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, Lorraine Ansboury, um you know, Malcolm X, and uh, so many others. And many of these folks were well under 30, you know, when they were making these monumental contributions to American society. And today, science, as you know, with BLM and other movements, we see a continuation of this rich and important tradition of youth engagement and um, what we what we want to ask is you know how do our young people understand the problems of the day what solutions do they propose and what do they offer us in the way of thinking about how we get from the problems to the solutions so anyway I, I thought I'd just get us to get us moving with with that um, uh, science so speak to me
0: Um, So, like, in the social movement literature, um, there's this concept that's uh, biographical availability, which is... uh a phenomenal way to say that um, they haven't the youth haven't yet been completely co-opted and brought into the system, and so they still have uh, some freedom they don 't necessarily have a mortgage they don't necessarily have the spouse to worry about they don't necessarily have the vested in position that they do within many aspects of their life and so in that space of biographical availability, they are free to roam about the political terrain and they're ready to go to jail for a while they're ready to be out there and so that um, the youth have been involved in um, historically almost all the movements that have um, taken forward um, to challenge political and economic and social cultural issues is, is, not, is not at all surprising in many respects. Um, in fact, I think this is one of the reasons why um, kind of universities uh, take the, uh, the degree of importance that they, that they have, right, it's just kind of like um, the prize is located on campuses and we don't necessarily view it in this particular manner, but it's just like, okay, so it's, it's more of an issue of which way will we turn biographical availability? Well, so will you channel it in the right direction, um, right direction being what perspective you're talking about, or um, are people going to be turned in a different direction against what we what we think they should be chan- turned towards? Um, so we kind of started thinking, um, um, this juxtaposition. And so we had like BYP 100, Black Youth Project 100 um, on the one side. And then it was kind of like, okay, historically, what other statements do we have from young people? And so we wanted to start with the Port Huron statement uh, for Students for Democratic Society. And it was just kind of like reading these two um, kind of like orienting documents um was incredibly powerful for us because we, we, we realized that that kind of like got us started to think about what was going on and, and you, you kind of forget about it. Right. Um, but the Port Huron Statement was written by some like, you know, some teenagers and some people in their twenties, um, as they were trying to craft their vision of kind of like what should be done and what's the problem and so forth. And so revisiting that is really powerful. So, so quickly, um, and we'll, we'll post all the stuff on the website um, because actually, if you start looking for the poor Huron statement, what you're going to find is a summarization of what Tom Hayden said. You're not going to find the full thing, which is 57 pages. And so um, that, in and of itself, I, I kept reading. I'm just like, this seems short, and I'm just like, oh, that's because I haven't found the original. And luckily, Tom Hayden's papers are at Michigan, and so I was able to find some stuff. And so um, we'll put we'll put that up and make sure that's there.
1: But the di- yeah, no, before, before we get before we get to that. Um, just before you, sorry to interrupt you, but oh, my give 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 our listeners maybe some more context for how we got to the statement. I mean, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was around it was it was around 1962, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so like, what what were the sort of the circumstances that you think most immediately led to the production of the statement by this by this group of students? So, and it was issued in Michigan, obviously. So, so yeah.
0: Um. So he does this to me all the time. So, um, <laughs> we have this infinite regress, right? We'd be like, um, not, not to go into Tom Hayden's history or to go into kind of like Student of Democratic Society, but, um, it's more or less, um, an interesting moment for those that are kind of like, um, um, scholars of social movements and so forth. It's, it's more or less an interesting moment in many respects because many of the, the youth of the time period, the white youth in particular, were reflecting upon the world that they had, um, lived through and inherited and, and they see they see the atom bomb, they see the Cold War, they see um, black black folk in '62. They start to see different parts of the civil rights movement kicking off, and they're starting to reflect about okay, okay, what's our what's our role in this? What what role should we be playing with regards to challenging um, political, economic, and social cultural issues? Uh, what should we be targeting? How should we ally, if at all, with um, with, with black folk? And so, in that space, um, Students for Democratic Society was being brought forward by a bunch of youth, um, just so happens that they, that they Port Huron is near University of Michigan. Tom Hayden was a Michigan student. Um, and so, um, it seemed it was, it was an odd thing. So when Tom was alive, um, he, and he had donated his papers here and and we were, we were Facebook friends for something else. And I was just like, Oh, you're coming to Ann Arbor tomorrow. He's like, yes. He's like, Oh, let's, let's catch up. And so, um, it's a personal thing at the same time, which I think was like really phenomenal. So, um, enough context for you.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah,
0: you know how you get sometimes. Okay.
1: Yeah. So you, you were making that you were going to wrap the point up about biographical availability. No, 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 I was going to go to diagnosis. Ah. Okay. Well, before we before we before we do that, yeah. yeah. Um, I think what we want to do then is so we we've got this historical example um, of the Port Huron Statement, um, uh, which was issued by students for a democratic society. They were very young, and um. One of the things that sort of struck me um, um, and, and, it's, and it's important to, to emphasize, as you work through the statement, there's like a formula here, right? Each American generation, and this is a story about America, but there, there there are similar stories that maybe can be told about other nations, although I think we are a bit special in the sense that we founded our republic on the basis of a, a commitment to certain grand ideals, um, freedom and, and justice and equality and also the idea that government is for and by the people right so you've got you've got this sort of rich tradition uh, of uh, um, uh, 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 thinking about America in terms of these values and its commitment to uh, government by the people so each generation right confronts uh, 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 the great paradoxes. And so that generation confronted the great paradoxes between America's professed commitment to freedom, right? But then you had war, equality, then you had what was going on in the American South, democracy, um, peace, right? And, they, and, and students have a chance because, you know, we, we immerse them in this in, in, in school, uh, particularly in college, to get a sense of America's constitutional constitutional and its broader ethical values, right? So each generation has its paradoxes. The generation for today has its own share of paradoxes, some of which are similar to to, to what we saw in the past. So, for example, just a couple of examples. Think about our commitment or our professed commitment to democracy as we continue to watch each day states like Georgia, Texas, and now Florida, as the New York Times reported, making it harder for people to exercise their democratic right to vote, right? We have a professed commitment to be, you know, lovers of peace, but we have this huge military budget, something I know you spend a lot of time thinking about science. We have a professed commitment to equality, but then we have all of these glaring disparities along different measures of well-being. So the students for democratic society saw these sort of ideals as, so to speak, more like ruling myths rather than descriptive principles that were actually being instantiated in American society. And part of the thing that they wanted to know is where are we going to turn for morally enlightened leadership and dealing with these paradoxes? And they were somewhat skeptical that we were getting the leadership from you know the adults in the room, so to speak. And so they decided to take up the task. And in taking up that task, they offered us diagnosis, prognosis, and means. Right. I was a little long, long-winded on that, Science, but go ahead and, and, and drop it on
0: us. Not at all, not at all. And so, um, we normally, sometimes we agree with regards to what the diagnosis, prognosis, and means might be. Sometimes we disagree. So that, that in and of itself is an interesting one. So this is, this is my, my take on what the diagnosis and prognosis and means were. Um, I think fundamentally, um, Students for Democratic Society was suggesting that capitalism is a corrupting influence on politics, economics, and social cultural factors. And, in addition to that, um, part of the, the diagnosis of the problem was that we were all living on the brink of global destruction through the Cold War. And it's, it's, it's amazing, like, you know, uh, I remember ducking cover raids, but you like talking to people and just like, oh, no, 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 school's interrupted and we worried about nuclear threats. I'm like, you know, they just kind of looking at me like, hey, school shootings, nuclear weapons. And I'm just like, no, 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 not equivalent. And so it's just an interesting kind of like um, contextualization in many respects. Um, and then at the same time, SDS is talking about... Um, economic inequality, and at the same time, it's um, warping of uh, the political and and biasing it towards the few. And they're also talking about the kind of culture of capitalism, how individuals are led in particular directions, and they're created, in a sense, to basically be purchasing and consuming and basically um, kind of dehumanized in many respects. The prognosis is interesting, right, Um, because they're, they're envisioning a full Political and economic democracy. And this is this is important to identify. They they want um the economic democracy part. So um they want individuals to be vested, to be sharing, to be co-producing, to be co-governing of the economic domain as well as the political. Because normally when we speak about democracy, we're looking at it in the political context, but they also are talking about economics as well. And 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 life is for creativity, right? It's is for expression, it's for love, it's for fellowship. Um work for joy. And, and the concept of like self mastery, not survival. I mean, like just, I mean, look at these look at these things that they're talking about that we should be directed towards, which is fascinating in and of itself. So how, so how do you get there? Um, the means they articulate, it's just like run with run, run with us for a second, right? Um, and capitalism and war and the war machine. And effectively, universities are the saving grace or could be for changing it all. They have the numbers, they have the resources, and they have the purpose in, in regards to kind of knowledge generation. And capitalism and militarism are influenced, and they influence the direction of the institutional units, and so we need to redirect these institutions away from capitalism and militarism, and students must be turned into change makers as opposed mm. to cogs within a wheel. Mm. So no small thing, Right.
1: OK, good, good, good. Excellent. I mean, let's make I might forget something. So so so. just just let me know if, if there's something else we, we need to sort of spend a little more time on. But this is I mean, you get us in more trouble than I do. Typically, I think science. But but I may get us in trouble today a little bit with this point. So. At universities, of course, across the country, there has been for good reason heightened attention to concerns about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right? That's, that's like the buzzword everywhere. And universities have mobilized significant resources and attention to promote these things on their campuses. And there's been a lot of student Uh, organizing and activism in pushing universities in this direction, right? Now, one question I have for you is to help us make sense of the kind of student activism we see today around DEI issues and the kind of student activism we saw in the early 60s That put concerns about war, capitalism, imperialism, poverty at the center of student activist platforms. Now, here's here's an exceptional case. I was just reading in The New York Times today. The graduate students at NYU University are on strike. Okay, Um, they they are trying to bargain for a new contract and. Some of the issues on the table for them are higher wage to compensate graduate students for the significant work that they do for the university, right? Um, but interestingly, another, uh, better better health benefits. But interestingly, part of the platform for these students, they want to see the police less on campus because they think that when the police show up, is typically black, bad news for certain segments of the population, black and brown students. So here we have, just today, Times reporting, just, just today, Times reporting on this, here we have a concern about police violence being incorporated into the platform of activism today. Um, but again, the, one, one might wish for more activism around the kinds of issues that you just drew our attention to, Science. Not to say that we should have less activism around DEI stuff, but it's just, it seems to be like not a lot of balance. Okay, you see where I'm going with this. Right, so I, Go ahead, I mean, I, I give you permission to just let loose on it, man, because this is a direct question for you.
0: I believe you get us in more trouble. But,
1: so... <laughs> I, I
0: think, I think part, part, part of my response is... So it, it's very BLM of them, right? It's very... It's very... It's very small, It's very disconnected to the world. I mean, what you get from the Port Huron statement is an embedding of American students and institutions into a global economic and political and social-cultural process. Mm. Look look what the NYU students are talking about. We'd like our wages higher. We'd like to see police less on our campus. There's no global contextualization. There's no understanding of how NYU fits with universities in Johannesburg, fits with universities in El Salvador, fits with universities in Kenya. I mean, it's just like, it's so, it's so narrow. I mean, we'll get to, we'll get to talk about BYP 100 in a second, but the, the thing you get away, the thing you get out of the poor Huron statement is there's, they're assessing America's place in the world and then American students place in that situation. And so uh, the NYU students, it, their conception of the problem, I mean, a- addressing wages, but I'm not necessarily talking about where the money is coming from, how the money is generated, what what wages mean, what wages are turned towards. I mean, the Port Huron statement is taken to what should money be for? What should work be for? I mean, it's just so it's so much it's so much larger than that the DEI kind of orientation is very kind of like specific and piecemeal and not fundamentally challenging to entrench political, economic, and social cultural power. So it's just kind of like, um, yeah, okay. So you get your wages. You're happy now. Now what? I mean, we had a similar kind of like move at U of M. They were talking about similar things and interesting, right? It's just like, it's the same array of issues. We, we like better treatment. We'd we like better respect. We'd we'd like, we'd like to be seen. I'm just like, What about changing the fundamental way the university is run, how the money is invested, what we're educating people for, what we're educating people towards? I mean, it's like, so it's like, you know, and we talk about like, some might view the the NYU activities as being radical. And I'm just like, uh, how, where? And so, you know, it gets to a a better understanding of kind of like the multidimensional conception we have of radicalism, how that's fundamentally changed over time. What would, what would, what would, you know, what would that have been viewed as in 1962? as opposed to now. And it's just like, um, not, not as dramatic as, as you would imagine in many respects, given, I mean, the poor Huron's conception of, of what humanity is supposed to be for, what work is supposed to be for, what is supposed to be for, what work is supposed to do for you other than just like help, helping you pay your rent, which the NYU to sound like they're trying to pay their rent. It doesn't sound like they're talking about work should lead to, a better sense of self, self mastery, self perception, and connectedness with other people. I'm like, I'm just, okay. yeah.
1: Okay, so so this this becomes interesting to me, science, because you know, in, in in that sort of remark, you're 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 starting to sort of give us some substance to how we might think about the duties of student activism,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and. Part of what I hear you getting at is that if you start with a certain diagnosis of our problems that's rooted in uh, concerns about capital, wealth, inequality, broadly rooted in things that have to do with how the United States moves through the globe, there's a way to get from that diagnosis to fairly demanding duties for students to, to, to undertake. And so one question is going to be like, how demanding do we want our activism to be? So so so, so just like another thing that's happening I think in the context of, of this sort of exchange here, I mean you, you made a point a second ago about students recognizing that they're typically being led in certain ways. And they're led in ways that some people would say, help to maintain whatever the problematic status quo happens to be. Now, one thing that we saw very sharply in the Port Euron statement is essentially a critique of the university for its complicity in leading students in certain ways. So let me, let me pull this one passage out of the Port Euron statement. That is rich and and, and and I think represents a certain kind of critique that pushes us to the big questions that you're proposing students ought to take up, right? If they're serious about activism. So here's here's the here's the passage. Um, our professors and administrators sacrifice controversy to public relations. Their curriculums change more slowly than the living events of the world. Their skills and silence are purchased by investors in the arms race. Passion is called unscholastic. The questions we might want raised, what is really important? Can we live in a different and better way? If we want to change society, how would we do it? Are not thought to be questions of fruitful, empirical nature and thus brushed aside. Speak to me, science. I'm like,
0: I like that passage. I also like the dominant institutions are complex enough to blunt the minds of their potential critics and entrenched enough to swiftly dissipate or entirely repel the energies of protest and reform, thus limiting human expectancies. I'm just like. They're, they're very clear on, like, how this works, right? And then you start thinking of oh, why, why is it all radical professors ended up at UMass, UMass Amherst? I mean, just like fundamentally there was, like, a purge of the left throughout American academia, which then resulted in certain individuals not having access to certain things. I mean – If you, if you happen to know like certain radical presses, you might be able to find them. But if you don't know what to search for, then you're not going to be able to get them. And then you need to have somebody interpret kind of Kropotkin and Proudhon to you anyway. So it's just like, now you just like pick those up yourself and just be like, Oh, now I get it all. And so now we've just like lost this tradition of thought and abilities to kind of, like, navigate there, but fundamentally, you then start to wonder, it's like, okay, that gets to the tenure system, that gets to kind of, like, the hiring, that gets to all these elements that end up channeling individuals that are leading citizens or potential citizens in a particular direction away from an ability to diagnose, prognose, and then also figure out how to to navigate between the two, and I think that is... I mean, that that cuts to the core of what the the liberal arts education is supposed to be about. It cuts to the core of the D marketplace of ideas invoking Charles Lindblom. I mean, where where fundamentally you start to wonder, well, what kind of ideas, what kind of critical imagination is available on college campuses? I mean, like on my campus, we talked about like not having Richard Spencer come speak and I'm like a big free speech person. I'm just like, let him come. I'm like, you all need to hear him because I remember it in graduate school um, where uh, it was said by the president that the Klan couldn't come on campus. And I'm just like, yeah. And then, like, you know, my, the professor, uh, Richard Hofferberg, who was an incredible racist, whatever, um, he brought the Klan in, not to support them, but basically he, because the president said he couldn't. Right. So. Um, so I remember uh, as his like lead T.A., I remember sitting up there. He's like, no, Christian, you need to be there because I wasn't going to be there because I was going to protest. Right. And so um, so the guy came in. And the next thing you know, this guy's talking about mud people and and had some, like, his his historical understanding of everything was out of jumping around. He's like, you know, there was mud people here, and then, then there was Africa over there, and I'm just like, wow, this makes no sense whatsoever. And I'm like, this is the best thing ever. Everyone should hear this guy speak. He's completely incoherent. He has no idea what the heck he's talking about. And so, from my perspective, I'm just like, okay, we need to have the marketplace of ideas as, as richly represented on campus as possible, so you can learn how to basically systematically deconstruct arguments, understand what's there, destroy What is ridiculous? And then just kind of like move from there. But then you have this whole issue of, well, some of us, some people didn't get tenure. Some people are not channeled in. Some people are not hired. Some topics are not, you know, are not favored. And then we end up this narrowing that takes place on the campuses. And then, okay, then you want someone who's kind of doing what Bill did before. Or, no, no, we need to follow up on Susan's trajectory of scholarship, despite the fact that she came out 30 years ago. Um, you know, so it's like this interesting dynamic where we end up replicating what has already kind of been there, and then no one really wants to be that critical of exactly what's going on. So then we end up in some, like, Kuhnian sense of, like, you know, networked, limited understandings of what's going on, and that is not good for creating complex thinkers who could then step into the world and then take action.
1: Okay, so you're going to laugh at this, man. So... You know, I gotta. You know, philosophers like to like to uh, play devil's advocate. You know, from time to time.
0: And Any time to time, always.
1: It's like from time to time, <laughs> and so so I want to I want to I want to advocate here. Um, and you're gonna, I know you're gonna laugh inside that it's that it's me saying this, but you know, in terms of because every campus has to deal with this question of what to do with controversial speakers, for example. Okay. Well, let me let me tie it to to the Port Huron statement. Um, so one concern, on my reading of it, that seems to really be at the center of the student Students for Democratic Society articulation of a prognosis, and, and maybe in a, in a minute too, you should you should remind our readers about Ptolemy. Um, our, I'm sorry, not readers, our listeners about Ptolemy um, and and, and, and the, in the framework that we've developed. But before that. On my reading of it, they are placing a great deal of emphasis on the development of a certain kind of democratic polity, where everyone is able to share in the essential decisions of of self-governance, where self self as in us as a society, right, to govern ourselves and our society. And they, they emphasize fostering independence, and importantly, to creating the conditions for that participation Okay That is creating the conditions that make it possible For everyone to feel like They're involved in part of The, the ruling the ruling Of, 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 of society Very du, now,
0: Very du Boisian
1: I understand, I hear it in my head too <laughs> Good, but you know Du Bois is in me in that way Right, so, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll sort of I'll accept it But here's where I'm going with this Now let's go back to the DEI Related stuff Okay, so this is the devil's advocate now. This is the argument for not letting Spencer come to campus. One way to make that argument when you when you have a Spencer or 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 in some cases like in Michigan to Charles Murray, who of course came to Michigan, right? The, the author of the Bell Curve. Um, some people would argue these kinds of speakers, right? And we know what they're going to say, right? Part of it is like we know what they're bringing to campus. This this is basically contributing to a climate that is not conducive toward feelings of belonging on the parts of some students right who are going to be the targets of whatever the controversial speaker is bringing so it was seen that if you if you sort of work out the the, the vision of democracy in this in this more radical Port Huron statement, it would seem to sort of push against the kind of uh, libertarian. I don't want to call you a libertarian, but <laughs> the, you. Kind of, the, kind of, the kind of libertarian conclusion that you drew a second ago. You see what I'm getting at? And I'm all for critical minds. You know, you know me. I mean, I'm, I think you and I are, are one thing, but but we're talking about a community of of, of people on campus. Where, where these, this, this negative argument I think weighs heavily. Go ahead, I'm sorry. It's
0: a community of what though, right? It's like, you know, I want a community of thinkers. I want a community of, if people are, students are empowered enough to go out into the world and they hear some foolishness and they're just like, you know what, that's foolish and this is why and this is why it's impractical and this is why it's not going to work and this is illogical and this is, just, this is no data. And if we don't have people that are armed in that particular manner, then they could get led in a, a million different directions. Then, then fake news can get, you know, it could, it could like get, get a hold of somebody that is like, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I, you know, the sun does kind of go around repeatedly around the earth. I mean, it's like, you know, we need some people that are basically able to think. And, and in order to get there, they need to be uncomfortable. And so if it's all about sensitivity and making people feel comfortable and belonging, it's like belonging to what? I want people belonging to an engaged thinking community. And to the degree to which they're not, because we never are confronted with anything else that's kind of like, you know, taking on our, our, our first principles or, or forcing us to kind of like work through the logic of, okay, this is the kind of world I want. Okay. I mean, what was Dewey's conception of like freedom, right? You you had a sense of what, what you wanted. You had a sense of where you were, and you knew what to choose to get from one to the other. Basically, he, he embodied Ptolemy in many respects, right? But it's like, and if you couldn't do those three things, then you weren't free. And so fundamentally, I think the DEI thing is pushing away people... They're pushing them away from freedom because they're privileging comfort. They're privileging not engaging. They're privileging not going at it. And like, you know, and maybe the the combative New Yorker part of me is just kind of like, yeah, you know what? If you just couldn't play the dozens and you couldn't like, you know, defend yourself orally, then you just had a horrible day and lost your lunch money. And maybe there's just that in me in many respects. And so maybe, maybe I think everybody should like either lose their lunch money occasionally or be compelled to, to engage in a particular back and forth that allows you to actually work through some logical arguments. Because if you can't, then you end up then you end up with Trump. Then you, then you end up with every, every horrible politician that will extract all types of resources from you and potentially your life because you're not, you're, not, you're not able to figure this out. Now, related to that, I'm just like, so when I was an undergrad at Clark University, Worcester Mass., G. Gordon Liddy came and talked. And, you know, if of my own devices, I, I wouldn't have invited G. Gordon Liddy. I, I wouldn't have wanted to go. And a friend of mine was just like, nah, man, he's connected with Watergate. It's historical. We need to go. And I was like, Whatever. That was one of the most fascinating talks I ever heard in my life. If anyone's ever heard this guy, he spoke for four hours, no notes about one of the most coherent discussions ever on the history of America. And I'm sitting there going. I disagree with it all, but damn, that was brilliant. And so you need to be able to kind of listen to people like that and assemble their arguments and deconstruct them in your heads, because if you don't, we're all in trouble. So my pushback against the DEI thing is just like you think you're helping us, but you're not because you're just disabling the population from being able to
1: engage with ideas. OK, well, that's that's a lot to say. And, and I know I want to I want to keep us moving. science. But, but, what, but one last thing I want to say, and, 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 and I know you want to quickly rebut is, OK, so one of the things we put on the table is how to think about the, the duties of student activism, now, one thing that's on the table is that those duties can be more or less stringent, depending upon your point of departure for diagnosis. Yeah. Right. So, so, so if the point of departure for diagnosis is, and 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 and, and, the, and frankly, the point your statement does use the word dignity too. I think at some point is like feeling like our dignity, our our, our sense of worth has been put upon, then we want to engage in forms of activism that counter that, where they manifest themselves in, in, let's say, our institutions, including our universities. Now, but another critique I think that you just set up with your response to, 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 to the devil's advocate is possibly a critique of student activism on campus that's investing maybe what you might think too much time into preventing speakers from coming to campus that might allow us to exercise our critical chops. Am I hearing that correctly?
0: You know exactly. That's where I was going precisely. I'm just like um, I just want to make sure I was on. You know, we I think we, we I think we were here at the same time when the Spencer thing was going down, and I'm in my classes, and it was like, they're just like oh this 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 racist. I'm just like I'm like let them come. I'm like. The university should invite all these folks so that we can systematically take in what they're take, what they're putting forward, and then after they have gone, we then break it down and understand exactly where it where where it falters,
1: and then that's okay, part of I your just, education. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I heard you yep, correctly, yep. and I know I know I did, and so we just we just that's that's on record, and, 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 and we'll, we'll we'll move on. So here's now here, here's the thing. Just, just, to sort of, you know, make make a shift. Um, I mean, if, if you think there's time, you could you could say quickly something about our Ptolemaic approach. Just, just to sort of make sure that people are clear about that, and then maybe now think about the transition to BLM one hundred. Now, on a, on an initial reading of the Port Huron statement and the and the BYP one hundred document, you might think. Back in the early 60s, the Students for Democratic Society were thinking about so-called racial paradoxes, racial plus other paradoxes. So when they were critiquing the war or imperialism or poverty, there were these other paradoxes in play. Now, this is not entirely charitable, but, but just as a start. On a first pass, looking at the BYP 100 document, what you notice is the stress is on racial remedies, racial paradoxes. And we see that in the kinds of remedies that, that show up in that document. Black reparations, a national scholarship for black students to go to college, right? So we see, we see what we've called in earlier podcasts sort of a race first approach to thinking about some of the remedies and some of the means. So perhaps you could sort of use that to, to science give us your perspective on some of the similarities and some of the differences, or maybe some of the differences really between the, 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 the remedies and the means that we get from SDS versus, B, uh, you know, B, BYP 100 on, on, on this score.
0: Um, before I get to similarities and differences, let me um, kind of give you my take on BYP 100. Yeah. Um, they seem to view that the economic system has failed Black people, um, and economic violence—a a concept that we um, that we've adopted as well—has devastated the bodies, minds, and souls of Black folk. Um, it's not just it, we don't just blame slavery though. It's just like there's, sla- there's slavery and and new Jim Crowish They kind of like added up. Um, racism, capitalism are problems. The carceral state is a particular manifestation of problems in the sense that it is taking up a lot of resources and attention. Um, So the prognosis, the liberation of black people, um, healthy lives, strong families and communities, black, um, no racism, no prisons. The means, direct quote, bold, expansive, and wide-reaching public policy change that moves our economy toward equality and equity, that center the experiences of black folk, establishes decent wages for black labor, um, and the priority of reparations recipients should also include individuals and families affected by the war on drugs, redlining policies, and divestment of blighted communities, disinvestment, um, and value of black women and trans people, and divest from the carceral state. So, um, first problems, before we get to similarities and differences... Um, it's not clear why politicians would be able to function in the system, right? It's like, okay, yeah, so, so you have some black people that get some people in office, but okay, they're still in office with several thousand other people and a million other individuals that are part of the United States government, so how is change actually going to be brought forward by that? Um, what about the impact of the economy on politics, taking us back to the Port Huron statement? What about the globe? What about the rest of the world? What about other people in the United States? Um, is not inequality... Um, in the United States related to global inequality. I, I think none of these issues are addressed by BYP 100 in part because of the orientation that they take. Um, so just want to get that on the table first. But the similarities and differences, I think the similarities, that I think both highlight inequality as being a problem. Um, I think they're kind of similar, the two kind of similar, in that the carceral state pitch is is more or less identified as a problem. Except the poor Huron statements connects connects the carceral state um and the and the prison industrial complex with the military industrial complex writ large, whereas um um I think um BLM is more US focused and more related to black folk. Um fundamental differences I think poor poor Huron is more holistic, um it's more global, it's deeper and longer term and broader in the scope, whereas BLM solutions are, are more practical and I think more immediate. That's a yeah. lot, but
1: that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot, science. Um,
0: you asked me, though.
1: Yeah, I did ask you about that. Um, okay, let, let, let's try this one, just one, just one sort of angle. Yep. I don't know why the, the DEI thing is, is stuck in my head.
0: I know why. But, but,
1: but, but like, like another another way that DEI-related issues sort of present themselves on our nation's campuses. And if you and I and, and some of the, obviously, some of, the, some of our audience today that are joining us from Dartmouth could, could speak to this, I think, in, in, in all kinds of ways. You're going to say it better than I'm going to say it. I don't even know if I can say it delicately. Um, in the siege, right, there was really not a problem with saying, "Look, black people are under siege in the United States." Right? I mean, it was, it was that was the thing to really say, right? It was it was black people are under siege. Now, with the passage of time, with integration with various sort of uh, 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 efforts to bring black people into, into the middle and upper class and to put them in places where they can symbolically represent. Some people said, look, yeah, black people are still having problems being put upon, but they're not the only ones that are or have been under siege in America. And so a real commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion should involve some recognition of these non-black injustices. Okay? Now where does this leave the student activists? If you go into some circles, particularly activism around, let's say, where we see this a lot, L, L, B, G, T, Q plus activism, there's already a sense of like we're in this together in some of these spaces. And so even even the labels that we use, you know, like like 15 years ago, people want to talk about a queer alliance as opposed to coming up with letters for each group. Because they thought, if you do that, you're going to miss somebody. So let's go with a bigger umbrella. Now we use this this language of biopic communities. We go to the talks, right? What's happening with this? And are there any sort of suggestions about what duties student activists might have to either represent this type of broader thinking, or on the other, other side of it, not to just dig down and say, no, black people on campus have specific problems that white students don't have, that Asian students don't have, that Latino students don't have, etc. George Floyd, case in point, right? How do, Where do we go with this? I mean, I'm sorry that that's not as well-formed science as I would have liked, but it's a delicate issue, as you, as you know.
0: So as you say that, I think of, um, it's now like a folkloric, right. With regards to the white woman walking up to Malcolm X and she's like, I, I, I'm feeling very sympathetic about your particular cause, but, but what is it people like myself can do? And then he goes, nothing. And so there's a, there's a very strong sentiment for me or the BLM kind of response, which is just like, we have this and we, we must address our own problem, step aside. And so I, I find that to be, um, Problematic in different ways, right so it's very different from the the universal conception of the poor Huron statement, and maybe as a bunch of like um, um, elite um, white individuals, maybe they had uh, the opportunity to be more encompassing and more universalistic in, in their conception of what was going on, but it seems like the struggles have pushed off in different directions where people are vying for uh, this is, this is how my community has suffered no this is how my community has suffered, this is how my community has suffered, and very rarely are we able to kind of like come across. Um, with the terms of the alliances. And I think that, that fragmentation is problematic. So um, interestingly enough, like I, I told you I was doing the thing with the Aspen Institute earlier today, and the whole conversation in many respects was kind of like, okay, so what can we do? How can we make um, democracy more viable and functioning? And, and part of it was we have this myth, um, which has gained a tremendous amount of traction recently about how divided we are. I'm not talking like some Andrew Hacker Two Nations thing. It's just like, oh, we have, it's polarization, it's polarization. I'm just like, I'm like, we're not unified on anything. I'm just like, I mean, I think the 99% was kind of a unifying moment, right? It's just like, you know what? We're all getting screwed. The .5 or .3% is doing incredibly well, whereas the rest of us are not in that, they're you know, not in that realm at all. I'm mean, like, I'm like, wasn't that a moment where we can kind of acknowledge where different people were? Which is against this fractionalization, right? So I like try to, I try to view I try to view all these discussions as, it's an empirical question. All right. To what degree does black persecution or black oppression overlap or not overlap with other communities? It's an empirical question. It's like, Are they are different communities able to get access to loans at a better rate? It's like, do you have a higher likelihood of being able to get a job if you're this identity or that identity? All these things are empirical questions. But this polarization discussion, this I'm going to go for mine and I'm going to represent my people. You represent your people. Sounds like black power to black people, brown power to black people, white power to white people. Which is some retrogressive stuff from the sixties, and guess what? It didn't work out that well back then. So maybe we need to be thinking—not necessarily a rainbow coalition—but maybe we need to be thinking about the things that unifies. So, I mean, talking about my my police work for for the moment, with Derek and I doing some stuff on police files and police reform, it's like if you just if you just believed that kind of like you know, well, I'm, of course, I'm sure many white people view police and police violence differently than what black people it's just empirically that turns out to not be the case there's amazing similarities with regards to what people believe is appropriate under different circumstances and so if you started with the mantra of things are different things are isolated things are distinct then we never get to coalitions and so part of my fear with the blm thing is just kind of like you know we need to care about fundamentally the dignity of black folk and then that excludes everybody else and lets everybody else work, work out their own problems and I'm just kind of like, okay, is it possible that black folk can resolve their problem by themselves? I'm like, okay, that sounds like Elijah Muhammad and like the Nation of Islam, right? It's just like oh, Marcus Garvey. It's like, okay, we don't need anybody else. I don't know that that works out that well either. So it might be that we need to have more encompassing and more abstract and higher level kind of conceptions of what our problems are and the resolutions in order to get to come coalitions and fix stuff. But there's a reason why I think this race first stuff and this identity first stuff is pushed. And part of that is it's not at all going to be effective about removing the fundamental problems that people are going to deal with. And So, uh, it, so it seems like a position of strength, but I think it's actually a position of weakness.
1: Well, I, I think science, our audience, after that, uh, after that uh analysis, Will agree with me that you get us in more trouble, uh, but 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 I'll leave that aside. And, and it's because this is as a segue, I think, into a, a related question that's important here. And this is a topic that has uh, been getting uh, increased attention in in my field of philosophy for different reasons. Um, so, how, how should we think about leadership and representation in these in these new? Movements. A um, couple questions: Should we even have leaders, right? And, and and you know, you could maybe give us some context for what you know about the BLM movement and what people have said about that. Should we? Should there even be leaders, so to speak, in the in the traditional sense of leaders? Um, if, if so, how should they be selected? Uh, when when students are thinking about their participation in movements. Should they be seeking leaders with whom they share certain descriptive characteristics, race, sexual orientation, gender, um, you know, coming from from poverty, or should they be chosen based on a shared ideology, a shared worldview, or in our terms, some shared sense of diagnosis, means, and prognosis or some combination of the three, right? What do you have to say about that question? I, I, I mean, I think I, I can make some inferences from what you what you just said, but 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 you know, I, I dare not speak for you, man. You <laughs> know, you dare you're an, not. A, you're a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. You know, I can't speak for you, man. They, yeah. they didn't let me into that that outfit.
0: Don't even, don't even. So, <laughs> so I, I think I think BLM is leaderless, not necessarily by choice, but by kind of like historical evolution. The the earlier organizations were devastated, and thus the organizations that survived later on had already figured out some ways to kind of like, we need to create these types of institutions and not these types of institutions. And then isomorphically, you end up with leaderless organizations as the thing that you should kind of like emulate. Now, I think any, we, we know enough from org studies, we know enough from social, we know enough from psychology, any group of individuals that are coming together, some leaders are going to emerge in some level. The key is, um, for a social movement perspective, you need to make leadership decapitation not be deadly to the movement. And so effectively, you need to work out some principles by which once the leader gets eliminated or co-opted or somehow um, corrupted or tarnished in some way, shape, or form, that that organization can then move to the next person, move to the next person, and you're still able to function. And this is why we talked about like cells in the terrorism literature. This is why we talk about things like this, so we can try to isolate the, right. and, and flatten the organizational structure where everybody knows more or less everything. Um, and I relate this back to, back to students actually, right? So we want students to know absolutely everything. So everybody to kind of go wherever they need to go. And it doesn't matter who's in charge at the moment or what happens with them because they all know the same type of material and that would make them incredibly powerful. And those types of organizations are very difficult to get rid of. And so I think um, I think we need leaders. I think they're inevitable. I think um, they could be better trained. Um, but leaders should be leaders should be selected, I believe, not on any demographic characteristic at all. I'm, I'm, I'm very much I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of kind of like um, uh, symbolic representation. I'm a fan of winning. I'm I'm a fan of I'm a fan of getting people food, clothing, and shelter. And whoever can deliver that to you, I think is the person you need to follow. And I think we're I think we're I think we're bad with regards to substantive representation. I think we're bad with regards to figuring out exactly who is the best person to deliver the goods. And you know, I'm not I'm not gonna be like for the following, but I'm just like most of the conversation about John Lewis when he passed was how much of an icon he was. It was very little very little discussion about all the successful legislation he got passed and all the things he fundamentally changed within the society in terms of actual problems. And it's just like, that's because he is an individual and the Congressional Black Caucus generally are viewed in a particular manner where other people don't deal with them because they know how they're gonna vote. And so fundamentally, we need to talk about the efficacy or lack thereof of certain types of political activities. And people don't wanna go there. The symbolic representation stuff has got a hold on folks. I'm just like, I'm all for the fact that I'm the first black professor that many students will see. I'm all for that. I'm like, okay, yes that's really bad. But at the same time, I'm just like, okay, who can deliver to the students exactly what they need in order to success have success within the world? Are the black students looking to me for some substantive reason or because I look like them? And I'm just like, in this King's argument, it's just like the content of the character. I'm like, that's what we we're supposed to get to. We were supposed to get to content and we still talk about race. We're still talking about, and, and now with Harris, right? It's like, oh, I'm so happy to have a black. I'm just like, when she put black people in jail, I'm like, can we get to the content of the politics? And so no one wants to have that conversation. And once she's in, once she's in office, we will not have that conversation, but I think we should all be about content all the time. And with regards to leadership, we should be following the individuals that can deliver the goods. And this is like, you know, not to say that we're at war or not to say that West Point is the model, but at West Point, they're systematically talking about how to win, how to win state societal interactions. That's it. How to win What's, who's the best leader? what are the best tactics? How do you evaluate success? We have nothing that's the equivalent of that within civil society we're really not doing it in universities when you know how many classes on social movement efficacy do you have on your curriculum right It's just like um we certain things we need, but we need to basically counter counteract the fact that and every generation right is like you got you got you got Kanye or Kendrick saying, don't, don't, don't trust anybody over 30 until, of course, they get over 30. And then it's like, but except me. Um, but now we're in the situation again. Right. Where are just like, OK, so we're we're recreating knowledge and purposes and institutions every generation. Whereas West Point has been there for how long? Whereas the Naval Academy has been there for how long? This is why states win. This is why elites are, are able to maintain their control over individuals because they're talking about efficacy and we're talking about identity. <laughs> Quick one.
1: Wow. Well, well, science. That's a that's a powerful thought to end on. Um, you and I, our, our last our last time together, we we had the the good pleasure of teaching a course together on Black political thought, and and we discovered that one of our intellectual heroes is Angela Davis. Um, to to speak about content, efficacy, and coalitions, and, and the great lessons that she teaches us about all those things, and and importantly, one of the things that Davis emphasizes very humbly, is the importance of the old heads passing the torch to the new kids on the block, to the newer generation, to young people. And that's something that she's very passionate about. And you and I agree wholeheartedly with that. And the best we can do is to give them some tools, to give them some logic, to give them some data, and give them Ptolemy so that they can do the job that they're going to be charged to do better that maybe we've been able to do. So, brother, I think I'm good for the day and and I'm looking forward to mixing it up with with Dartmouth students and community. So uh, take us home.
0: I think we're done. We'll see you on the other Zoom. Peace. Peace. If you're interested in a deeper dive into the subject, you can go to see our website, com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Doing Knowledge or look out what we're doing on Instagram, Doing Knowledge Again. Um, that's the lines. That's the logic and the science for the day. We out. Peace. Peace.